Last week, we were introduced to Stephen, one of the deacons, a man sent by God in power to show the church the grace of God. And yet Stephen was seized, dragged before the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body of the Jewish people. They produced false witnesses and brought forth accusations of blasphemy, a capital crime. And so we turn here to Acts chapter 7. This is the longest speech in the book of Acts. It goes on longer than any of the sermons. Now, perhaps Luke has, has chosen to record more of this than the sermons where he gave us a, a briefer glimpse. And so we're going to read the, the passage today in pieces. As we see Stephen make a defense, not so much aimed at proving his innocence, but a defense which will prove the guilt of his accusers. And so listen as I read. This is Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of the, that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb of Abraham, that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our hearts, to our lives. Father, I ask that as we listen to the words of Stephen, but more than that, to the words of your spirit, who has inspired your word, Lord, that we would listen with ears that are attentive to your truth. Lord, that we would listen anticipating that you are going to change us, that you'll expose our brokenness, our sinfulness. And Lord, I pray that you would point us to our hope in Jesus. Jesus, our rescuer and savior, we come praying in his name. Amen. We're at the moment of drama. Stephen has been asked to enter a plea. He's been charged with blasphemy against the law of Moses, as if he was saying, all that Moses told you is worthless. 
He's been charged with blasphemy against the temple of God as if he says the, the temple has meant nothing at all. He's been charged with blasphemy against God himself. And so now the high priest, the same high priest who earlier had convened the Sanhedrin to bring a judgment against Jesus himself, the high priest stands before Stephen and asks him, are these charges true? Is Stephen guilty or is he not guilty? And instead of entering a, a, a plea, instead of immediately declaring his innocence, Stephen goes on a history lesson. Now, when we, when we first read it, we might think Stephen has missed the point. Stephen, who's been sitting quietly. Stephen, don't you realize the seriousness of what's taking place? Don't you realize the charges that are being brought against you? This could cost you your life. You will be thrown in jail. You will likely be flogged. We've seen it happen to the apostles. What makes you think you will escape? And instead of answering the charge against him, Stephen jumps to Abraham. He jumps to a history lesson. He's not attempting to secure an acquittal. Instead, he turns the accusation back on the accusers. You want to talk about guilt? Let's talk about guilt. And so he begins with a history lesson, a reminder to them of the things that they would have learned in their Sabbath school in reading the Old Testament promises of God, that God had shown his grace thousands of years before by choosing Abraham, one man, a man to, to bless, a man who believed in the promise of God even when the promise was still just a promise, when he hadn't seen the promise come to its fulfillment. And, 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 and in some sense, Part of what Stephen is doing here is, is reminding them, yes, we are here in the city of God, Jerusalem. We are here talking about the temple of God, here in the city of David on Mount Zion, where the promises of God have been, have been fulfilled before us. But, but remember, remember Jerusalem, yes, has an has a important place in the plan of God, Stephen is telling him. But remember, it wasn't here. It didn't start here. This wasn't the first place we saw God's grace. Where did it happen? It happened in Ur of the, the Chaldeans. It happened far from here. When God, who can't be contained by one nation or one people, called Abraham and gave him great promises. Abraham then becomes the example of faith, the one who was told the land will be yours, and yet he doesn't own any of it except a tomb to bury his wife. Abraham, who was told he will have descendants, and yet he and his wife don't even have a son. And yet he believes the promise. Abraham, who's given the, the covenant then of circumcision, and at the birth of his son, applies the promises of God and says, God is faithful to us. Stephen continues his history lesson and speaks of, of the descendants. We have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob becomes the father of the patriarchs, the 12 sons who are the, the, the leaders of what would become the tribes of Israel. But he shows them that, that the, the the, the Jewish leaders, the, the fathers of our nation, have abandoned God. When God showed grace, the people rebelled. Because what did they do? The patriarchs themselves were jealous of Joseph, of one of the brothers, and sold him into slavery. But, and look, look with me at verse 9. The, the patriarchs are jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. But look at the promise. But God was with him and rescued Joseph from all his troubles. God is a rescuing God. God is the God who is faithful even when his people rebel against him. 
Now, when we read, when we read the, the defense that Stephen brings, the apology, and not that he's saying he's sorry, but that he's defending the truth of, of what he's been preaching, when we read his apology, it feels very distant to us. It, it, it feels hard to connect with. Some of that's the historical distance that we're thousands of years past this moment. Some of it's the theological distance that, that their conversation here is taking place only within the confines of the Old Testament, it feels like. But, but part of why it feels so distant to us, I think, is that, that we, we think we've come a much longer way from this kind of moment, where people would point the finger at one another and judge one another. Because we live in a culture, maybe this is the, the way that you would, you would think of it today, where we shouldn't, we shouldn't judge other people. We shouldn't tell them that they're wrong. We shouldn't try and convince them that, that what we believe is right. And maybe you've even heard it, or maybe you yourself would, would say, and yes, doesn't Jesus himself say, do not judge, or maybe you've heard it in the old-fashioned language, judge not lest ye be judged. I mean, those are words that Jesus himself speaks, and so therefore to bring judgment against another must be wrong. And so culturally, we think that, that that's the case. And so Stephen, these religious leaders, their dispute, it's, it's flawed from the beginning. And yes, it is true that Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 says, do not judge or you too will be judged. But Jesus isn't saying judgment to tell someone else that they're wrong, to make an assessment of someone else is always wrong. He's saying, no, when you judge, realize that the way in which you judge will be turned against you. When Jesus says, judge not, he doesn't mean it's not a, it's not a blanket prohibition, because just read the very next verse. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus says, judge not, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is saying is, when you judge, do so rightly. Do so based on the truth. Do so with compassion. Why? Because the very next verse, Matthew 7, verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus is saying, of course you have to bring judgment against others. Of course, when somebody sins or does something wrong or says something that's blatantly false, you have to respond. But do so first looking at yourself because we can only judge other people by their actions or their words. But there's one person whose, whose motives I can judge, my own, because I know the very reason that I act, and so I need to look at the plank that's in my own eye before I deal with the speck in yours. And so the, the prohibition from Jesus is never to not bring it is, is that we can't bring judgment. The prohibition is that when you judge, do so rightly and with compassion. Because think about it. Even to lay the claim that we should never judge other people is itself a judgment right? You're, you're drawing a distinction and saying that anyone who would judge anyone else is wrong. The problem is as soon as you say that, you've made the distinction, on we, and then of course you fall on the wrong side, because you, we have to live our lives building some sort of distinctions. We can't go through life just letting anyone do whatever they please, believe whatever they want to believe. I mean, you couldn't, make, you couldn't get home from church today, from the parking lot, if we lived like that. People could just choose, well, you know, today I'm going to drive down the center of the road. I'm going to use that yellow line to guide my car home. I'm just going to, you know, today is a, is a red means go kind of day at intersections. No, of course we, we expect people to follow basic guidelines for safety, which means why when it comes to the view of the world and how the universe works and what is right or wrong, we would just let people do whatever they want. Of course judgment is required. 
Do you see what Stephen is doing? They've brought a judgment against him in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And he says, let's talk about guilt. But let's begin with the promises of God. God is the God who rescues. God is the God who saves. We saw it in the life of Joseph. And as he continues his defense, he says, let's look now at that, that pinnacle moment in our history. When we were slaves in Egypt, but then God rescued us. And so let's continue to read what what Stephen says. Let's turn back again to the book of Acts chapter 7, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 17. Acts 7 verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, your brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses looked with fear and did not, Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what ha has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held an, a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. Stephen continues the survey of history, pointing to the greatness of God. God was using Moses to rescue his people. God performed miraculous signs to deliver his people. And yet, what is the response of the people? Verse 39, 
But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Instead of worshiping the true God who had proven his power by rescuing them, leading them through the Red Sea, delivering them, giving them his word from Mount Sinai, instead of listening to God, what do they do? They turn their backs on God. They turn their hearts back to their idolatrous allegiances in Egypt, and and they, they make a physical idol in the form of a calf. Instead of worshiping the true God who had proven his power, they they melt their gold and bow before the cow. And so God is bringing judgment on the people because they've completely abandoned God. They're guilty of idolatry and false worship. Stephen recounts their history showing that God was faithful and you disobeyed. God sent leaders and you rejected them. God gave his word, and you would not listen. God rescued you, and you turned away from him. And so then in verses 42 and 43, he turns to the scriptures to prove his point. He's recounted the history, but now he will quote to them from the prophets. Look at verse 42. God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, perhaps Stephen recognizes the restlessness of the crowd, and so he starts to move a little more quickly through the history. He doesn't recount their faithlessness in the face of the, the, the judges that he had sent, their faithlessness in the, the face of the kings that he sent. He jumps immediately to show that that pattern that was established in Egypt, when we worship the false god, that's the pattern we have followed. That's what the prophets told us. That's what leads to the judgment God brought in the exile. Stephen used the words of Scripture to condemn his accusers. He turned his attention to the power of God's word and says, God's word lays your soul bare. God's word is a spotlight that shines into the deep recesses you have attempted to keep hidden. You have worshipped other gods. You've turned your attention and worshipped the stars themselves, the created things instead of worshipping the true God who loves you. Now, is Stephen making his case? Yes, he clearly pleads that he is not guilty. But instead of clarifying what's going on, instead of saying, well, I'm not guilty because you've misunderstood me. I'm not guilty because I'm not teaching that the law of Moses was unimportant. The law of Moses exposed our sin. So there's no blasphemy here. Yes, he, he makes that case, but he's doing something much more dangerous here. He's turning their attention to their failures. Look at verse 44. It says, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. He's speaking of the the tent of worship, the place where God met with his people. Because remember, the, the debate here is about the temple, the permanent replacement for the movable and portable tabernacle. He has been saying that the temple was never meant to be the place where you could keep God trapped. It's as foolish as walking around with a shoebox and saying, I've got God in here. I can control him. He does what I tell him. He comes out when I want. God is not a genie contained in a bottle. 
God is the God of the universe, even the temple itself, as permanent as it looks, lasting here for hundreds of years, was only ever to be a temporary place where we met with God. For God has come himself. And so he continues in verse 45. This is Acts 7, verse 45. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? See, Stephen is willing to speak with boldness, knowing the great risk that comes to him. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been dragged before the Sanhedrin, the same religious group that that brought false witnesses against Jesus and led him to his death. Stephen knows that these are the same men who who demanded that the, the apostles be flogged. Stephen speaks with great boldness. He gets worked up, but what is he worked up about? The gospel, the message that God has not abandoned his people. He is the God who rescues his people. And so even when you turn from him, God offers you grace. See, I don't think we're a people that are hard to get riled up. I just wonder if we ever get this passionate about the gospel. See, I could get you riled up today. I just ask you to talk with me about current events, to talk with me about politics. You, you, can, get, you can get excited about your favorite television drama or the failures of, of your sports teams or a perceived personal slight that somebody has committed against you. You can get worked up, but do we ever get worked up and passionate about the gospel? Stephen, at the beginning of this chapter, we were told at the end of the last chapter, sat quietly with a face like that of an angel, and yet when given the opportunity to explain himself, gets passionate about God's grace and our sin. See, would you be willing to speak with such boldness. A boldness that then turns the accusation directly against his accusers. You want to talk about guilt. You want to decide who stands guilty of blaspheming God. Do you want to know who the false worshipers are here? Stephen turns the spotlight of God's word onto them, his accusers. Look at verse 51. In verse 51, we read, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He says, You are the ones who are guilty before God. You are a stiff-necked people. He's not describing how bad their, their, their night's sleep was last night. It's not a physical description. He's picking up the language that actually comes from that section of Exodus where the people worship the golden calf. When in Exodus 32, God says to Moses, my people are a stiff-necked people. It's a description of their moral failures, that they will not turn back to God. They will only continue pursuing their sin. They are people with uncircumcised hearts. Again, pointing back to the promises given to Abraham. The God is the God who loves his people and has made promises to his people, and yet they are covenantally unfaithful. In the face of God's grace, they have turned away. They have resisted the work of God's Spirit. Now, I'm pretty sure Sunday school 
caused me to fail a Spanish test in high school. Okay, to be fair, it was really more my laziness that caused me to fail the Spanish test. We were, were supposed to read a, sh- a short story in Spanish, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't an announced test. It was an assigned, it was a pop quiz, because I'm pretty sure my teacher recognized that we had not really been keeping up with the reading and the work. And so when I read the description of one of the, of the main character in this short story, that he was stiff-necked, I didn't take it as a physical description. I, having grown up in Sunday school, took it as a moral description, like the book of Exodus would say. And so I didn't bother looking up the vocabulary, which would have made it clear, no, 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 the the author meant stiff-necked. The character is made out of wood. He's a ventriloquist dummy, which if you don't know the main character in the story is a ventriloquist dummy and you're guessing at answers on a quiz, it doesn't go very well. Because the problem is not with their physical posture. It's with their spiritual attitude. They are a people resistant to the power of God's Word. And so Stephen continues with his critique, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen is innocent. His accusers are guilty. He has shown that God is the God who rescues, and yet his people turn away. God sends leaders to announce grace, and yet the people reject them. God deserves their worship, and yet they turn and worship idols. And yet God has not abandoned his people because he sent the righteous one, the one who is perfect and holy, Jesus himself, the one promised in the Old Testament and now having arrived on the scene to prove God's power and love. Jesus who put himself in the place of sinners and died on the cross. Stephen is is offering this moment of grace. You who have been stiff-necked, turn back to God. Jesus is your only hope. See, it's not enough for us to agree with Stephen that the Sanhedrin is guilty. That's an easy conclusion to reach as you read through Acts chapter 7. The question is, do you see your own sin in Stephen's condemnation? Now, yes, maybe if if Stephen walked through your story, your personal story, It it wouldn't recount the the idolatry at at Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. Maybe your idolatry would be much more specific. Maybe your failures wouldn't be the failures of the brothers of Joseph. It would be your own failures in the story. If your sin was laid bare, if you were called to give an account to God, what what would the charges be and how could you plead? Stephen is not guilty of the false accusations brought against him. But Stephen knows he needs the grace of the righteous one. For when his fathers refuse to obey, he sees in it his own heart. He's willing to examine himself as he brings judgment against them. We are rightly found guilty of sin against the holy God. If Stephen had entered a guilty plea and then begged for forgiveness, maybe they would have spared his life. Or maybe Stephen could have entered the not guilty plea and said, it's just a misunderstanding. You thought I was talking about destroying this temple? I wasn't talking about this physical temple at all. I was talking about Jesus. I was talking about his body. I was talking about his resurrection. Let me just, let's clear this up. 
we can get this out of the way. But what does Stephen do? He takes advantage of the opportunity to preach the gospel. He calls his listeners to repent. He holds up the mirror of God's law before them and says, you are guilty, and yet there is grace here. Stephen offers them the great hope that comes to us through the righteous one. And honestly, we don't know how the speech would have ended. Maybe he has a great conclusion planned, but this is too much. They won't let him finish. And they rise up against him. Stephen saw the hope of Jesus and offered them true true forgiveness if they would repent. He offered them the hope of salvation. Where does your hope rest today? Let's pray. Father, in this biblical story, we find our own sin, our own willingness to chase after false gods, to chase after temporal pleasures to bring us satisfaction, to ignore your grace and mercy. Lord, we are resistant to hearing your gospel, your good news of rescue. We turn our backs on you. So, Lord, I pray that you would bring us to a place where we would find forgiveness in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, that those who listen, feeling the weight of judgment, would not find comfort unless they find it in you. Lord, that, that, that any false paths of, of satisfaction would, would leave them feeling the weight of guilt until they come to you. Lord, let us find our forgiveness in Jesus alone. Jesus, our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.